Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. I want to consider today how we can get to that point of contentment, of security, to not be troubled by these questions of who am I and what's my purpose. Now, as a child, I used to read these uh, choose-your-own-adventure books, and I found one in a second-hand bookshop a, about a year ago. And I was like, oh, wow, this is like my childhood. So this is a great little prop for today. At the bottom of every page, there's a choice, and you get to choose where the story goes. So, for example, on this page here, where you meet the shark, it says this. If you decide to fire the special propulsion charge to get to the surface, turn to page 20. If you decide to wait quietly, hoping that the shark will go away, turn to page 22. And the book goes on like that, and you can follow and choose, design your own story, mark out our own path in the story. I used to love these. But it's symbolic about our culture that we're all about individual, uh, sorry, individualism, choosing choosing our own destiny. You know, no one has the right to tell you how to live your life. Do it the way you want to. And that's what our culture is all about. So how do we search for identity inside ourselves? So one key area that our culture tells us we are worthy is in our quest for success. Have you ever noticed that in society today, it's a little bit embarrassing to be faithful but unsuccessful? My decision to put my career on pretty much permanent hold to have children and to serve the church is kind of met with some confusion, especially by my hardworking family's outlook of you get what you put in, you know, really hardworking, that's the focus. So for me, to see me give a huge chunk of my time to the church, what, for free? Are you crazy? They just don't get it. It's slightly frowned upon. And there's nothing wrong with having a career or having a career with young children. That's not the point. It's just saying that that's what society kind of doesn't really look up to because there's no success or glory in it. However, what does our society really celebrate? You know, I guess things like building your own business from scratch and having it multiply. Like, wow, that is impressive. Or what about setting up a charity and really influencing your city like that. Wow, we really look up to that. Or, or what about sort of slightly more ordinary maybe, but just getting promotions and get, gaining responsibility and having your pay increase. I mean, you know, we really admire that kind of success. And you can apply whatever situation, you know, is relevant for your sphere. And there's nothing wrong with doing those things at all. And in fact, if you can give glory to God and do them, those are really important, valuable, privileged things to do. But what society sees in those is that they hold them up as some kind of success, faithfully doing the same job year in, year out for the same money, just isn't really giving us that same sense of kudos. But what happens when we put our identity into our success well, firstly, we feel inadequate if, what, if we feel that what we're doing is not enough. We're always pushing for that next challenge that somehow promises to fill the hole inside. Maybe you're one of those lucky ones that gets to do what you really enjoy and actually you turn out to be really good at it. Well, uh-oh, 
careful in case you lose it. You know, it's always one of those tender, tightrope things. You've got to keep it up. You've got to stay as successful. Make sure everything goes just right. Maybe there's another perch that you've got to aim for next. We're anxious. Desperately trying to get to where we want to be. And then when we get there, it's not feeling enough. Or maybe we could lose it and go back. We're anxious. No one wins. This search for success is soul-draining. It's a black hole that can never satisfy. It just produces one elusive target after the next and can't be depended on. You know, Paul could have easily got his sense of success from what he's doing, and actually for good reason. I mean, he was one of the key founders of the Christian church, and 2,000 years later, we're still talking about what he said and wrote and did. So it's pretty impressive. But he says he cares very little if he's judged by his readers, or it says, verse 3, for any human court. He wasn't living to please people or gain any success by any worldly standards. And this enabled him to be free, just to serve God and to serve the churches without any other agenda. You know, maybe, maybe success is not your thing. Maybe you're not a particularly ambitious person. Another way that we look for meaning and purpose of identity is through our relationships. And if you missed the talks that we've done in this series on friendship or marriage or singleness, I definitely recommend you go and have a look at them on the, and listen to them on our website because they're really worth listening to. We have a deep longing inside of us for a deep connection with others. You know, that best friend that knows us inside out, that partner that commits to us unconditionally, we even look to our children for a kind of significance. You know, once I'm a parent, I'll be complete. And all of those desires for intimate friends, for a spouse, for a children, they're all good, God-given desires. Do you know why? Because they point to something else. They point to a friend who is closer than a brother. They point to the bridegroom who gives his life for his bride. They point to a family of belonging. If those desires for a friend or a spouse or for children are the end in themselves, they can never satisfy. They can never fill that void. Because if you get them, they're just a fallible person like you and me with sin and selfishness and insecurities and worries. They can't complete you. That kind of pressure would crush or paralyze anyone. Perhaps it's not so much about having these people in your life, but it's about keeping them there and keeping them happy. You know, we, do we desire their approval before anything else? And if, if maybe if we don't keep them happy, then they might leave. And so there's a pressure to make sure that we keep on impressing them. And I find this is a real issue in friendships. Um, when I moved to Dublin, I didn't really know anyone. And uh, I was keen to make friends, to get to know people. And, you know, as an extrovert, I was at home all the time with the kids, so I really needed to meet people. And, and I'd say now, six years later, I have a few good friends in my, you know, neighborhood, and I know them through school and other things. Do I feel secure in those friendships? I mean, do I, do I feel like if I could, say, I could say anything and they would still accept me? No, in all honesty, I don't. 
And so is it tempting, therefore, for me to guard what I say to make sure that they still like me? Of course it is. And the fear of losing their approval is something that I grapple with all the time. But if I left it there, if I allowed my desire for their approval, and again, this is not a bad thing to want people to like you, to want to have friends and to not want to offend them. You know, that's not a bad thing in itself. But if I allow my desire for their approval to take over, I will always be anxious. Overanalyzing every conversation and every interaction, every invite or non-invite. Oh, wow, they invited me to their party at their house. That must mean they really like me. Oh, no, they didn't include me in that thing. That must mean they don't really like me. Um, Oh, no, I put a kiss at the end of my text. And then when they replied, they didn't put a kiss at the end of their text. So that must mean they think I'm coming on too strong and they're trying to, you know, keep me at arm's length. I mean, seriously, these conversations can go around in your head. I've actually had to tell myself, Leanne, you put kisses at the end of your texts all the time. Just be yourself. doesn't matter. It's not a big deal. You know, we have to tell each other, tell ourselves these things. Getting others' approval will always be fleeting. It will never satisfy. That person can't be dependable enough to hold up our fragile ego and identities. We need someone much stronger. Paul says that he cares little about others' judgment. He doesn't care if people are saying, I follow Apollos' teaching, I follow yours. It's of no consequence to him. So where else do we look for our identity? I mean, the list could go on. But if we can't get a sense of self from our achievements and we can't get it from our relationships, maybe we're getting it from inside ourselves. Can I set my own standards of what it means to be a worthwhile person? Maybe standards of how good I am, how good looking I am, whether I have the right figure, the right clothes, the right things around me. But the problem with having a standard, whatever it is, to achieve is that those standards are nearly always very difficult to meet, like striving for a perfection. It's just another form of achievement. Either that or we set ourselves very low achievable standards and then we feel miserable because we're a kind of person that has really low standards. Trying to live up to standards, whether they're external or whether they're internal, is still a trap. How about when we allow our feelings to determine who we are and how we live? How we answer that question, who am I? And in today's culture, following our feelings is massively significant. A friend of a friend of mine, this guy, I don't know him very well personally, uh, but I kind of know of him. And um, I first met him actually at the George Bar for a leaving party for this mutual friend. And I knew he was gay because my friend had told me a few times. And to be honest, it was blatantly obvious when I met him because he was kind of flirting with all the guys. Um, And then the next time I met him was when I bumped onto him on a bus, on a bus. And it was also with this, my mutual friend's husband who was also there. Anyway, we get into a conversation and within a few sentences, he dropped into the conversation because I'm gay. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. For him, it was the defining part of his identity. I I barely knew him, and yet he felt compelled to tell me. And and I I knew, obviously, because I'd been at a gay bar with him the other night. (laughs) So our culture tells us you are defined, and you find meaning and significance in your sexuality. This defines you and gives you identity. That's what our culture says. 
The other current issue of identity that's really prominent right now is gender dysphoria. And I, I couldn't possibly hope to give a full and balanced talk on that right now, but it's just another area where feelings determine who we are. So, you know, obviously if you've got a man biologically who feels like a woman inside, our culture says, yes, you're a woman, and encourages it. And what compounds all of this is that the church has a history of encouraging a shame culture when it comes to any sexual behavior outside heterosexual marriage and issues like gender dysphoria, and to be honest, shame culture even about sex at any level. When Jesus showed compassion to the woman caught in adultery in John 8, he said to her, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. But the church, instead of showing compassion, has followed the tradition of the judgmental Pharisees, just pouring condemnation on any sin and largely has failed to promote a biblical picture of healthy sexual flourishing. And understandably, the world has reacted against this holier-than-thou judgmental outlook and has bungeed in the opposite direction. So they say now, it doesn't matter what you do. Do what feels right on the inside. And there's few right or wrongs today in our culture when it comes to sex and identity. But can we allow our feelings to determine our identities? Are our feelings consistent or do they conflict? Are our feelings always certain and clear or are they sometimes kind of elusive and confusing? Like, I'm not even really sure what I feel about that. Do our feelings stay the same or do our feelings change over time? I would argue, and from my experience, that our feelings often conflict, are often uncertain and change readily. For example, uh, before I had kids, I was convinced that when I did have kids, I would go back to work. Uh, I'm not much of a homemaker, don't really like cooking or housework, who does? Um, and when I had, uh, actually, sorry, just to say as well, being at home with small kids just did not seem very appealing at all. But when they came along, my feelings changed. Although I didn't become your classic housewife, I did want to stay at home and be their main caregiver, something totally unexpected. Did I consistently feel like that? No, I didn't. Over the years, I've questioned again and again whether I'd like to go back to my career or stay. And my feelings continually change on that. And if I'd allowed my feelings to determine how I acted and who, what we did, our family would just be all over the place. Our feelings can't be relied upon to determine who we are. We need something more robust. Paul says he does not even judge himself. He doesn't pay attention to what people think or even what he thinks of himself. What a freedom. So how does he get there? We're going to take a look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 to 5. It says this, For he chose us, God chose us, that is, in him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Let's consider, when we ask this question of ourselves, who am I, what God would answer. He says that when we're in Christ and when Christ is in us, when we're followers of Jesus, when we accept Jesus' sacrifice for our sin and we depend on him to live life 
with him as Lord, God says we're adopted to sonship. And if you're at the weekend away, Ed actually mentioned this. Um, but just to say as well that when he says sons, that's whether we're male or female. To have the rights of sons in these days was to get the inheritance. The girls didn't get anything. So to be said, to be told that you will be adopted as sons was hugely significant. We have an equal and promised share in God's inheritance. And also, so just to highlight that, adoption to sonship. And also, look in verse 4, it says, He chose us. We were chosen to be adopted. This places a tremendous value on us. You see, when we try and fill our egos with all these external or internal ideas and meanings, they're far too small and try far too weak to fill them. Uh, Tim Keller says in his book, uh, in one of his books he's written, he says, they're just going to rattle around in there, which I just thought was great. All these ideas are just rattling around in our egos. They can't fill them. But when we consider who we are in Jesus, when we can found our identity on something sure and secure, we can, again, this is another Keller quote, we think not less of ourselves or more of ourselves, but we think of ourselves less. So it's not about having a low or a high self-esteem. It's about having a steady self-esteem, one that doesn't go up and down, one that's not inflated or deflated, dependent on the next encouragement or discouragement. It's self-esteem that doesn't change, that's steady. Isaiah 49, 15 tells us this. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. Humanly speaking, there's no stronger bond or compassion between a mother and her newborn. And yet Isaiah tells us that the bond between us and God is even stronger. As to quote an old song by Delirious, it's closer than a brother, more intimate than lovers. So what kind of a difference can a security of knowing this kind of affection make in our lives? Let's look back at what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4. I'm not going to read it again, but you can sort of read it over my head. Paul is able to let go of any judgment that may come from people. And he also doesn't listen to any judgment from himself. He has a confidence. He says, my conscience is clear. He knows that he's justified by Jesus' sacrifice, and he's secure in that belonging. He has a clear conscience. He's confident. But he also acknowledges that he's not innocent. He knows he deserves judgment from God, but he's justified through Christ alone. So he has a humility that comes from knowing that in himself, he has nothing to feel secure about. His confidence is in Jesus. So he knows God judges him, but the judgment is looking at a perfect Jesus. So he gets a confidence and a humility. And then he goes on to say, all that's hidden, all that we keep back, all that we hide inside of us will be brought to the light. Everything will be exposed. But that as adopted sons of God, we can be sure and certain that our sin is taken away and laid on Jesus. We'll be judged and not condemned. We'll be exposed but have no shame because Jesus bore our shame for us. So we can be confident in our identity as rescued and holy children of God. 
So I hear you saying, well, this is all very well, Leanne. I know it in principle. I know Jesus loves me. I know my identity should be in Jesus. I knew that's where you were going to go with the talk. I've heard it before. But really, people's approval, it sends me up and down. Knowing that I'm a child of the heavenly king of kings doesn't really change my day-to-day experience. In other words, I am still living as a slave to the world instead of as living as an adopted son of God. And I feel like I'm trying to convince myself that it's true. The Bible likens our relationship to God in two main ways. They are adoption, which is what we've looked at, and marriage. And they're two familiar human relationships that we can relate to. And those human relationships point us to, those, to the ultimate adoption from God and the marriage with God. So we can dwell on truth. We can tell ourselves that we are God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. And that's a good thing to do, but it can take time, years, ultimately, until we get to heaven before, as Steve said earlier, before we can fully know that identity. But it takes a long time, just like in earthly adoptions and in marriages. So when I got to marry, married to Steve, it felt very strange at first in, in uh, yeah, lots of ways. I remember giggling to myself after I got off the phone for the first time saying, uh, I'm Leanne Vaughan, <laughs> because I felt like Leanne Deffley. Terrible maiden name, but anyway. And I remember constantly hesitating every time I went to sign something. Oh, what's my signature again? I can't remember. It felt really awkward. But how, how did I get to become more familiar with my new identity? Did I keep my marriage certificate by the side of my bed and go, I'm married, I'm married, I'm married, I'm married, I'm married, I'm married, it's true, it's true, it's true. No, of course I didn't. I started to live in the new truth. So I was a teacher. So my name was Mrs. Vaughan at school. My new name was on my bills and my bank account. You know, instead of just making decisions for myself or, you know, just talking with my friends, I talked to Steve about my problems and my ups and downs. I lived as a married person. And sure enough, it took a long time. No. Uh, I lived as a married person, and eventually that sense of identity followed. And we can use the same kind of idea in our relationship with God. For example, how do you respond to criticism? Do you take it personally, dwell on it, allow your confidence to be knocked? Or do you remind yourself that you're a child of the king, that your identity no longer has to be determined by these external factors? And ask Jesus instead what he's trying to teach you and show you through the criticism. Are you, are you allowing the head knowledge to impact your heart when it really matters? You see, when we reframe these conversations in our head, when we think like this, slowly but surely, we'll learn to live in our new adopted and married identity with God. So to conclude, we've looked at some common ways we try to find our identity in success in relationships, in ourselves, by no means exhaustive, we can see clearly that those ways are far too small, too weak, inadequate for the task of filling our egos, of finding our identity. We can see that they don't work. When we allow ourselves to be won over by Christ's deep affection for us, 
his unwavering love, his unfailing faithfulness. We can find a sense of self that is durable, that doesn't waver or fail or let us down. When we allow our status in him to define us, when rather than in our own or in others' approval, it says that it's like building a house on a rock. And when the storm comes, it can weather, the, the firm foundation can weather the storm. When we build our identities on these temporary things, it's like building on the sand. As soon as the storm comes, the foundation go, gives way. Only the lover of our souls can do it. Okay, let's, I'm just going to pray. Father, we thank you for offering us a way out of ourselves, for showing us what it is to be fully complete in you. We thank you that you uh, didn't leave us to figure it out by yourself. You came down and you lived a life, the life that we should have li lived. And you died your death for us so that we could know you completely, be found in you. I thank you that now with confidence, but with humility, knowing that it's nothing that we can do, that we can rest in our identities in you. Help us to respond to situations in our life that make us think about our identity in other things. Lord, help us to remember who we are in you. In Jesus' name, amen.